relationships with in three distinct things, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we studied this before, we saw this diagram, which is an ancient diagram, ancient early church diagram, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, at least in the timeline. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And the Son is God. But the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. And the Son is not the Father. There are three distinct persons in one Godhead. We discussed very briefly a heresy that was developed by a man named Sibelius that is still in vogue in some places today, that with God, there are three separate modes of expression of the same God. That's not the Trinity. The Trinity is three equal, co-equal, co-eternal persons, but they're distinct persons, all with equal essence and with equal identity. We're in the process then of studying the second person of the Trinity, as he's often known in theological circles. That's Jesus Christ. There's no area of theology that's more important than theology. Let me say it again, because this is important. There's no area of theology that's more important than theology. Because if you get your theology wrong, then you're likely to get soteriology wrong, the doctrine of salvation. Other people say, well, wait a minute, salvation's got to be the most important one. But a lot of people claim to be saved that have very, very faulty views of Jesus Christ, and we would question their salvation. We question our Mormon friends, Church of Jesus Christ, right of saints, about Jesus. They'll say, yes, I believe in Jesus. They question about the Jesus in which they believe. And you'll find it's not at all the Jesus in the Bible. Our Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, they say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but question them about the Jesus in which they believe. And you'll find it's nowhere near the Jesus of the Bible. So Christology is foundational. It's extremely important. B.B. Warfield wrote, He is declared in the most expressed manner possible to be all that God is. Excuse me, Jesus. He is declared in the most expressed manner possible to be all that God is. To possess the whole fullness of attributes which make God God. The Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D. formalized the doctrine that we ended with last week called the Hypostatic Union. And they formalized it this way. In the incarnation of the Son of God, our human nature was inseparably united forever with the divine nature in the one person of Jesus Christ. Yet, with the two natures remaining distinct, whole and unchanged, without mixture or confusion, so that the one person, Jesus Christ, is truly God and truly man. You can memorize that by next week and make an A on the test. If you can't do that one, then do this. This is the doctrine of Chalcedon and the Hypostatic Union in summary form. In the person of Jesus Christ, we find undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. That summarizes Chalcedon. Now, we need definitions like Chalcedon, and theologians need to fight over those and to study them and to parse them in order to understand Jesus Christ. Who is more important to understand than Jesus Christ? I would suppose it's not Britney Spears. It's not any politician. It's not so many of the people that we spend so much time parsing their lives and listening to TV shows, and when something comes up on the Internet, oh, i got to click that to see what she's doing today or what he did today. All that's fine and good if you have a lot of extra time on your hands. But it's the person of Jesus Christ that we really need to devote our energies to. Jesus Christ is undiminished deity, meaning he is fully God. He's not partially God. He's not 50% God and 50% man. That's the heresy. He's 100% God and 100% man. He's undiminished in and true humanity in one person forever. Last time we discussed the idea that he was undiminished in but let's not forget the true humanity part. He's undiminished in and true humanity 
than one person or another. Tonight, we'll discuss briefly the doctrine of the humanity of Christ. But before we do that, there is a transitional doctrine that we need to consider. Many of you have already heard of this doctrine, some of you might not have. It's the doctrine of kenosis. In the doctrine of kenosis, we see that Jesus Christ, greater incarnation, voluntarily restricted the independent use of his divine attributes and the outworking of the Father's plan. During the incarnation, Jesus Christ voluntarily restricted the independent use of his divine attributes and the outworking of the Father's plan. Perhaps the most important key word in that whole definition is the idea of independent use. He voluntarily restricted the independent use. He didn't become less than God in the incarnation. But he did voluntarily restrict the independent use of his divine attributes. He did not restrict the use of his divine attributes. He restricted the independent use of his divine attributes. If you have your Bibles with you, open your Bibles now to Philippians. Look at Philippians chapter 2. And this is the great Timothy's passage. The word kenosis is a biblical word. It's actually a Greek word, kenoho. And it comes from Philippians chapter 2. And I'd like to spend just a couple moments in this passage, which is one of the great passages of Christology in all of the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2. The passage that we need to take a look at actually begins in verse 5. But I'd like to give you a run-up to it so you see how this passage fits in its context. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, yeah, I'm glad you're here. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing in selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. In older translations might have read one another as better than yourself. I would propose that's not a good translation. I like the NFL term. It's more important. Or their needs are more important than yours. Then in verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. What Paul's calling this young church at Philippi is that one of the greatest Christian virtues is humility. Looking out after someone else's needs as though they were more important than your own. That is, at least to the flesh, counterintuitive. Matter of fact, most people have counterintuitive. You go, wait a minute, you mean, you mean I'm supposed to set aside my own good so that they can prosper? Since that's counterintuitive, Paul knew that he needed to bring out what I call the special apostolic Greek term. Anytime the Apostle Paul wanted to drive home a point of application of theology, he always brought out the Greek term. And that's what he does. So when, when Paul talks about this idea of Maintaining the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one person, everybody pulling together rather than striving apart. And this is not talking about just an individual local church, although he's talking to a local church. And even later on in the letter, he'll talk about two ladies that don't seem to be pulling together more of sometimes the other institutions. Even though he's talking about a local church in a specific context, the significance is to the broader Christian community. There are, within local churches, many more similarities than we have the difference. Now, there are reasons why people have those truths. Some people like a particular worship style, other people like a different worship style. 
some people want to start their church at 10 o'clock, some people want to start on Saturday night at 8 o'clock. Well, all different kinds of preferences. And, you know, some theology says separate that. But if we are those who have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and to live eternal life, then we are part of the body of Christ, the larger body of Christ. And if I truly believe the Holy Spirit, and we see His own people fighting against I guess we get a Catholic person that I attended one time that comes all over and preaches on the resurrection of the dead. And at that particular moment in time, that particular month, that particular week, there was a lot of fussing and fighting going on in the church. And it had to have to do with the theological issue. A lot of fussing and fighting. Some of those people ended up in church. As we familiar with that particular institution, fussing and fighting is okay. Sometimes it's expected. These kind of theological issues need to be hashed out in faculty rooms and classrooms. But Chuck didn't like the fact that there were people arguing in the rehearsal. So in this chapel service, he got to quote someone else and he said, Gentlemen, the enemy is over there. The enemy's not sitting right next to you. Even if you have a slightly different theological slant on the thing, the other person's not the enemy. Again, there are reasons why people break out into different kinds of churches. But Paul is in, his, in the local church of Philippi, and then speaking in other places here in the other places, to the idea of unity in the whole body of Christ, says, Make my joy complete. Stop this fussing and fighting. Make my joy complete. Be of the same mind. It doesn't mean we need to be robotic, but we also think the same thing when it comes to the theology of the Word of God. Maintain the same love. United in spirit. Intent on one purpose, and that one purpose is ultimately the glorification of God. Many tell us how to do it. Don't do anything from selfishness. Selfishness kills unity, it kills love, it kills the, the one purpose type of intent. Don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. So live with that thing, one interest, and the rest of it is the best. Now, if you were Paul and you're in that situation, and you want to guard this point, and you see the living with you, there's a little bit of skepticism. Who was it that considered someone else's views as more important than his own? There's only one answer that comes to those questions, and that's Jesus Christ. Because he didn't have to do what he did to hurt you. He was not forced to go to the cross. He would have been perfectly within his right to try to fight you on that cross. But that doesn't violate his law that he was perfectly and so he, in humility, came to pay a price that he didn't know that he had to pay himself. Now, in verse 5 through, verse 5 through 11, we see one of the, as I said a minute ago, one of the great Christological passages in all of the Bible. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. Now, do you see what Paul's talking about as he goes through theological conversation? I want you to have the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus, which, by the way, is each of you doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Who, although he existed in the more state or the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is one of the most rhetorically difficult phrases to translate to come up with from the Greek into the English. That's why if you take five or six different Bibles, you're going to come up with at least four or five different ways to translate that. Because the equality of God is, the equality of God a thing to be grasped. 
seven verse 29 tells the wisdom, his reason for it, that God would still quote, Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy from Psalm 107, 29. And as I think about that now, Jesus as creation, we remember the phrase that was the age of creation, as creator, he had authority over the storm. So it would be perfectly reasonable for Jesus to have called the storm and his own power and his own deity. Just so that he didn't use that power independently of the Father. He still humbled himself. He didn't use the power independently of the Father. He would feel the blood. This is like the second of his places where he believed that Jesus acted from his own understanding and the healing of the blood in John chapter 9. This is actually brought up in Psalm 146 8 as the, the Messiah, the, the Yahweh, would heal the blood. Again, Jesus as Creator has authority over body, over human body. So it would not have been outside of the realm of reasonableness for him to have done that. And Jesus is very specific. He didn't simply say simply in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus the very same as in chapter 9, verse 2. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, and 44, verse 22, we find that forgiveness of sins is an activity that belongs to God alone. Part of the prerogative of God, it's not up to me to forgive sins. I can forgive you for sinning against me, you can forgive me for sinning against you, but in terms of any eternal penalty, I can't take that away from you, and I sure can't do it as a third party. If someone's sitting on this side of the room, I'm assuming someone's sitting on this side of the room, and you came to me and said, listen, I offended that person over there. And, I, and, and he's not involved in it at all. I said, and if I said, okay, well, you're a forgiven sinner. Well, I better do that then. I better keep it in my mouth shut because this is the one you got. I got nothing to do with it unless I'm God. And if I'm God, then I was offended too by the action. That's quite different. Maybe that's a confession to God, but he also made it personal. That's fine. He also made it personal. Acknowledge that sin to them. And that, that's how you come to God. So like the Pentecost Jews, and I do too, that there were times when Jesus very probably acted straight from his own deity. It's certainly possible, it's possible, that Jesus performed all his miracles under the power of the Holy Spirit. But what I'm saying is that view is not very easily validated from the text. So we must leave it there. With respect to his deity, the word incarnation, okay, we've heard it all too often here, but it really means that it's taking place in flesh. The word incarnate is the Latin word incarnation, which is a translation of incarnate in flesh. But the word incarnation means in flesh and denotes the act whereby the eternal Son of God took to himself an additional nature, humanity. And that took place through the virgin birth. The result is that Christ remains forever unblemished, undiminished human, which is how he came to be found. But he also possesses two sinless humanities in one person, the Lord forever, in one person, forever, and 
Jesus Christ became humanity in that first Christmas day to take on flesh. That was something of permanence. That's why we call it the unique person of the universe. When we get to heaven, and when we meet Jesus Christ, we will meet him, we'll stand before him, and he will have a resurrected human body. And it will always be that way. It's kind of tempting when we think about what happened when we have our service over here Christmas Eve night, when we have one in here Christmas night, and we're celebrating the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. That was a monumental event that happened. Because eternal God, in a point in time, became true humanity and not just for the duration of time when he was on earth. It's a permanent union. He will forever be true humanity. I don't know if you've ever wondered this. I've had people ask me this question. You think there could be a multitude of other universes where there are not just other planets, but there are other universes out there, and God has all these planets working at the same time. And people sometimes, their imaginations go, they start, they're intelligent people, so they start projecting things out and they think, well, what if, what if, what if? That's not an unreasonable question for very reasonable people to ask you that question. What if, what if there's other people out there and God has a different plan for them? Well, of course, I guess it's theoretically possible, but I don't hope it's not. I'll tell you why. That is because of the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is permanently human. And that tells me a lot. That tells me this is the creator that he's concerned about. I don't think there are a multitude of other universes out there, a multitude of other creators. I think this is it. I think Jesus Christ, I know Jesus Christ, left the comforts of heaven, the second person of Trinity, who's the eternal Son of God, left the comforts of heaven, came to earth in a point in time, was born probably in a cave, not a stable, but probably in a cave right outside of a little village called Bethlehem. That happened in a point in time in the world, the universe was forever changed. This is bigger than we get at the We're so used to having to argue the deity of Christ. We don't spend a lot of time on that. And that is because of that particular principle. So, the incarnation, which means in the flesh, denotes the act whereby the eternal Son of God took to himself an additional nature, humanity, through the virgin birth. The result is that Christ remains forever a humanity. The fact didn't change. But he possesses a true, sinless humanity in this single person, in this eternal and meaningless person, in this eternity. Once the Messiah would be born of a virgin, was predicted some 700 years before it happened. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 stated that a virgin would be his child. And while there may have been, Old Testament scholars believe, many believe there may have been a year of fulfillment, and they always call partial fulfillment for that prophecy because the Old Testament word for virgin there is the word that means either virgin or young woman. So there may have been a semblance of an Old Testament fulfillment, but the ultimate fulfillment to that prophecy is very clear. The Bible tells us what the ultimate fulfillment was. The ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. We learn that from Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. The next passage is quoted and applied to Jesus. In addition, in the New Testament times, the word that's used for virgin there can only be used for the 
that I was ambiguous as to what the facts were. So I hope you will see what I'm talking about. There may have been a portrait of him in Isaiah's time with a young woman who had a child. But the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy, according to the scriptures, is in Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate reference to Israel. If Isaiah could have written down the story of his time, and he had seen this near fulfillment, if he could have asked him, was that it? Was that the fulfillment you were talking about that Isaiah is saying here? He said, it looks similar to what I was talking about, but that's not really it. Then he could go down further and further in time and finally when he gets to Jesus, he says, that's it. That's what I mean. That's why Matthew, writing on Jesus' birthday, can say that Isaiah chapter 7, 14, is ultimately a reference to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was born of a virgin in a way that is beyond human explanation. The Holy Spirit provided the necessary genetic material to men who was today probably a young boy. The typical Jewish girl who was betrothed at the time was somewhere between 12 and 12 and a half years old. It is necessary 
Jesus Christ is to be worshipped. If he had been born of Joseph, he would have possessed the crown of David. This whole idea that we can that is controlled. This whole idea that we can be Christian yet deny the resurrection, or Christian yet deny the virgin birth, that doesn't hold water. Because Jesus, the unique person of the universe, was virgin born. To deny the virgin birth is to deny the Genesis of the Bible. If you deny the virgin birth, then you are also leaving the virgin birth. Say that word, you say it all backwards. You deny the virgin birth, you're leaving the virgin birth. With regard to the body of Jesus Christ, what are we going to do with the body of Jesus I don't think we really have much of a choice. As many people are listening to the sad Christian teaching, this is a very sad generation. The church during the time of Jesus was letting the real born Christians who he taught slaves and all other kinds of events that he was very much addressing with the Other people have tried to depict Jesus as though he was an African and he was a black skin. Jesus is Jesus. But who he looks like, he looks like the Jewish people who did. Now, it is true, since the Bible doesn't tell us otherwise, since the Bible does seem to tell us in some way that Paul, I think that Jesus was a Christian man. Christian Paul would have been a dominant person in Jewish circles at that time. Jesus is probably about six times more dominant. I don't know what he proves that, but if you were to typically do that, you would have that high standard. You know, it's all a very secular thing as well. Jewish people are just fanatical. And so most of those people were fanatical. And then when you do have somebody like Paul that's teaching Paul, if Paul would have had a I don't know exactly what Jesus' body looked like. I doubt he had blue eyes like some people who say that they imagine they were blind. You know that he had a beard, because the Bible tells us that. I would assume, because of all the walking that he did, all the either carpentry or mason work, depending on who you disagree with or I don't feel like he may have been a mason that place that just got to up and walk past him. I'm sure he was well-built. I doubt he was built like one of the sportsmen where that's kind of a normal build for him. I don't know if he was well-built. Just like any person that works for him. I would imagine he was relatively slim. Just like any person that has to work some day that's 20 minutes away from that. I know a couple of people who do that. People I know that would do that are relatively slim. I do not walk that far. If I did, I would not have my last flavor kicked out. I don't know But if I did, I would be shorter than I am now. I don't know exactly what Jesus Christ looks like next to the Lord of Lords of Heaven. I'll stand in front of him and just see him in resurrection power. It's going to be absolutely wonderful. But that's not overkill. The body of Jesus was like the bodies of other men. Except for those qualities, which are resulted from human sin and death. There are certain aspects to our physical body that are just a result of sin. And Jesus didn't have any of those. But otherwise, Jesus walked in the earth. He didn't need to be buried in the earth and have that faith. Now, today we do because it's a very sad spot. But if Jesus is saying that people look at him as if he's too bad and he's not so hard to understand, that's just not true. Look like anybody else. I would assume, since the Holy Spirit provided us a way to say that Jesus was 
Because some groups put Mary on a pedestal and worship her as the part of the universe. 
Jesus Christ was unbelievably Jewish. 